0: one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode number 327. As I'm recording this, it's my sister's birthday, and I'm not sure she's ever actually listened to an episode of the jazz session, but on the off chance that this is where she starts, happy birthday, sis. I love you. And as you're listening to it, if you're listening to it on the day it's posted, in many parts of the United States, you might be celebrating Thanksgiving. And if you are, Happy Thanksgiving. And, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, political issues wrapped up in that, too. But I'll just say Happy Thanksgiving because it sounds nice. Okay, on we go. Thanks to the Respect Sextet, they recorded the theme music for this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Go there, buy their albums, see their shows, etc. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website. If you go to allaboutjazz.com, you can type jazz session widget into the search box, and you'll get some code that you can put on your website that will show the latest episode of the jazz session. If you do that, let me know, because I will mention you in my newsletter, which goes out every Monday, except for this week. When it went out on Wednesday, which is like Monday, but two days later. See how that works? A few years ago, I heard uh, the record, the first record by Amir El safar uh, to really explore the the fusion, for lack of a better word, between uh, Makam music and our kind of more standard jazz improvised tradition. And then I heard another record by him, and then his new record, Inanna, and everything I hear just makes me want to hear more. It's, the music is It's fun. It's interesting. It's really rich in depth. And uh, I was excited to get a chance to talk to him about this new record. Before we hear that conversation, let's hear the opening track from the new album. My guest is Amir El-Safar, and the new record that out on Pi Recordings is called Inanna. It's great to finally have you on the show. It feels like it's long overdue. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Yes. This, uh, <clears throat> I, I felt a little bit challenged when trying to think of how to begin to talk about this record, because obviously, people can just listen to it, and the music stands on its own and mm-hmm. is amazing. But I kind of feel like this is one of those records where if you don't... Like, you miss a lot if you don't know some of... The, the underpinnings, both the musical underpinnings and the, uh, I guess, kind of mythological or programmatic underpinnings of mm-hmm. the music. So uh, maybe one place to start for folks who don't have any familiarity, which pretty much includes me with Macomb music, would be to talk about a little bit about that, a little maybe primer on that, and okay. then um, how you've kind of fused the kind of Western improvised music mm-hmm. with this music that you spent so much time mm-hmm. studying.
1: Yeah, well, the maqam is is uh, in general refers to a modal system that's found throughout the Arab world, through much of Central Asia, through even as far as far east as the western regions of China, um, and then you know North Africa, even into the Sudan. It's sort of this um, modal system. There there's seven note modes, and in general, um, it's it, and this is referring specifically to the to the. Um, Melodic component of the music. So there's a rhythmic section that's sort of its own thing. So it's, in some ways, you could say it's roughly equivalent to a raga in in North Indian music, um, which some people are a little bit more familiar with. So um, in in each culture has its own take on the maqam and sort of its own way of using these these modes. And you'll you'll find certain commonalities. Like I've listened to music from the Uyghur people of China and been like. Wow, this is the same melody as, as we have in Iraq. It's just a little bit, you know, accented a little bit differently, or, or has like a different kind of um, general aesthetic. But the, the the underpinnings seem to be the same. So there there's probably some ancient source, maybe from from like a thousand years ago, from the Abbasid period, which was the when the sort of the height of the Islamic Empire, when Baghdad was the capital of this this sprawling um, <coughs> huge empire. Were great. Uh, advancements were made in, in many many sciences and music being one of them um, or it could have been from 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 various other source you know points in history from the Persians um, but basically Maqam as is practiced in Iraq it, it involves these seven note modes but they're put into these, into compositions that, interestingly, they're, they're sort of semi improvised. So you listen to it, and it's, the first time I heard Iraqi Maqam, I thought it was purely improvised music because it's rhythmically free, and these phrases are very melismatic and, and they sound kind of whimsical. They don't sound like something written or something composed. Um, after further investigation, I, I found out that these melodies actually each have their own distinct characteristics. Every melody that's performed has its own name a certain history to it comes from a particular region of Iraq or from surrounding areas and so basically the, the repertor- it, there's like a, a whole repertoire that these maqams um, make up and they kind of represent a cohesive um, symbol or representation of, of the cultures and the societies within Iraq and around its borders. Um, That's sort of a general description but but it's basically this this in iraq maqam manifests as this pool of melodies this, this like source material um from which improvisations compositions and many things um can can come out
0: So do these? These it sounds like maybe these melodies have uh, some prescribed elements, and then how you get from note to note is that where the improvisation comes in—that people do melismas and that kind of thing in between the notes.
1: Something like that, yeah. Okay. Like there's structural underpinnings that are kind of common to. So if you listen to many different performers, you will hear those underpinnings are the same, but the details are are where the the, the fun comes in. Sure. And mm-hmm. hey,
0: can you say a little more about the rhythmic component?
1: Too? Yeah. So. Um, iqa' is the word for rhythm in in arabic in general and it usually usually it's these sort of grooves or these rhythmic formulas and and there's there are only about um in in iraqi maqam music about 12 or so distinctive uh rhythms that all they're all kind of variations on on one rhythm which is sort of a, a slow a slow 6 um which nobody really knows where this comes from, but I find it throughout Central Asian music. And I mean, my, my guess is it probably came through the Gulf, uh, the Arabian Gulf, and cu- coming from Africa originally, because I feel like there's an underpinning of, of that s- sort of pulse in, in a lot of the music. And uh, Iraq is an interesting example because Baghdad has this classical maqam, uh, system. But in the South, there are these particularly particular folk traditions that are, draw very strongly on African, um, East African rhythmic and, and vocalizations and, and have a lot of those, um, properties in, in them. So again, it's, it's like we think, you know, okay, this is Arabic music, Iraqi, this, this, and then jazz is something really different. But then going back and I'm just, I'm now reading a book called Africa and the Blues that talks about, um, sort of some of the, the, the influences that, on, on, blues music that may have come through Islam, may have come from the Arab world, the call to prayer being part of, of, you know, the, the lore of the, the, the slaves when they came here. Cause, you know, so it's, you know, so there's these connections that, that we always think things are so far apart and, and actually, um, a lot
0: is, is, we're a lot closer than we think. I so. totally agree. I find that the more music I listen to in my life, the more it seems like what separates them, it, many different musics is nuance rather than some sort of prime element. It seems yeah. like, you know, you break through one wall and you just hear, oh, okay, well, now I see how this exactly. relates to this thing that mm-hmm. I heard. Yeah, it's, I think, which I think is beautiful. Um, so you, I know that you at one point decided to really devote uh, a considerable amount of time uh, to traveling, to really studying makam music. What was it that that spoke to you? What was it that made you say, I'm going to put the trumpet down for a while and really— focus on this
1: well it started out with um, in 2001 it's, uh, the summer of 2001 is when I decided that I really wanted to delve into Arabic music and it was something that I had kind of known all my life yeah at some point I'm going to get into it because I'd, I'd heard it when I was growing up and was interested in, it, in some parts of it to varying degrees but was never, it was never like a you know it was, it was not the music I, I was drawn to when I was young I was much more interested in rock music and the blues and and then later jazz and, um, and, and some classical music. And I got a degree in classical trumpet, but, um, shortly after moving to New York, I started to find that my, the, the people that I was falling in with were, I mean, Rudresh Mahanthaba, I'd known him since, since I was in high school. He was one of my early teachers actually. Um, and then, so he, he, he was, he'd moved here a few years before I did and then Vijay Iyer and uh, Elliot Covey and Carlo Duroso, the, these people that everybody have, I found had some kind of s- something in their background that wasn't a hundred, they weren't, it you know, wasn't the black or white sort of paradigm that, that I think jazz and maybe our, our general sense of culture has been up until very recently. Um, but they, you know, everybody had some, uh, different cultural background and and was drawing on that to create their their own musical style own musical language and um and i found that really inspiring so i decided at some point in in early 2001 to start figuring out how to play quarter tones on the trumpet and i found a, a special trumpet with a valve that i could a slide that i could use to play quarter tones i don't use that instrument anymore i use a regular trumpet now um but i i i Thought I was just gonna spend a few weeks and maybe a few months checking out this music, learn a couple of the modes, and then apply it to my (laughs) composition and improvisation,
0: and which is not exactly how it worked out.
1: (laughs) No, it's I I really thought I was like, okay, I'm just gonna check this stuff out. Like, oh yeah, those, you know, because I had a couple books, and I was like, oh yeah, that rhythm seems really cool. Okay, but I found that, especially in 2002, when I went to Iraq. Every time I'd learn a little, you know, I was, again, I was supposed to spend three weeks there and I had a return ticket I'd already purchased. And, um, and I kept extending my stay and extending my stay until it was almost three months. Um, it was about, yeah, two and a half months. And it was one of these things where every, every time I'd learn a little piece of information, it was like, well, that doesn't quite make sense. Well, how, how does that work if this is, you know, and, and then I would have to ask that question and then I'd figure out that, that just opened up a whole other set of, of questions and, and it just kind of, and, and at some point I I was so, you know, I was neck deep in this, in this music and, and really like felt like, okay, this is, this is, this is me and this is, I, I identified with it so much, um, not knowing really why or how, but because um, I'd been studying other Arabic music that I'd been exposed to here, like Egyptian and Lebanese, and I enjoyed it, but somehow the Iraqi maqam had a particular pull on me, and whether it's something ancestral that was um, triggered by it or, or resonated with it, or whether it's something that you know, I noticed that there was a certain blues element in the in the maqam, like the way that the singing kind of has a there's a wail and a cry to it that I really identified with. So I said, okay, well, um, but I didn't I didn't know what it was, but I just knew I had to get more of it. You know.
0: I've, I've found in sometimes in my own life that as I start to study something I decide that if I'm going to have an authentic grasp on it rather than just like a a tourist's grasp th- that I really need to spend more time was there any of that involved there too that you felt like you really wanted to have an authentic hold Yeah I mean
1: cuz it was also pretty clear to me from the beginning that I mean, from from these early points that if if I uh just just learning these no these notes and the the modes and learning the intonation was was it would have been a superficial understanding and and I wouldn't have felt comfortable um you know reaching into that and and applying it to jazz without fully understanding what i'm what i'm dealing with um, so basically those that three week trip ended up being almost three months and then I came back again later in that year and spent another three months and then spent the next four years um studying the music pretty intensively with, uh, with, uh, I couldn't stay in Iraq cause the war started in early, in March of 03. Um, I left two and a half months before that, but I, I was able to study with, um, different performers and, and practitioners in, in Europe, mostly, um, London and, uh, Holland and Munich, Germany.
0: And also in, Azerbaijan, is that right too? In in Azerbaijan,
1: that was more recent, but I was studying the Azerbaijani muqam, which is their take on the the same, very, very closely related muqam tradition. Okay.
0: And you also learned, uh, you studied this music, also from a vocal perspective, and you learned an entirely new instrument as well, right? Mm-hmm. The process was, you say a little bit? Because
1: that. that was another thing where I, I was, at the beginning, I was determined to make the trumpet work because I'd been listening to this Egyptian trumpeter named Samuel Babli. He was kind of my inspiration to play Arabic music. Um, and I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to do for Iraqi music what he did for Egyptian. I'm going to, you know, bring the trumpet and introduce it to this. And then I quickly, uh, well, within, yeah, during that first trip, realized that, you know, if I, again, if I want to get an authentic, Understanding and grasp of this music, I need to understand it on its own terms. And the music starts with the vocal. I mean, the, this this particular tradition is really about the vocals, and then the instruments are kind of come after that. So, so I said, okay, well, I, I need to learn to sing. And I had sung m- when I was much younger in church choirs, and, and I had a rock band in my early teens. Um, but I hadn't sung in it must have been at least twelve years. But when I got <clears throat> When I got into singing, I also said I want to, I want to learn to play a, an instrument that's from within the tradition. And santur seemed complete, completely unrelated to what I was doing on the trumpet. And, and maybe, um, sometimes I wish I'd play, you know, learned a wind instrument like the nai or something. But, but I, I really wanted to get an instrument that had the rhythmic and melodic component, um, to it. So I, I mean, I felt like the santur, I could, I could address the, the musical material, but also, be be firmly connected with the the rhythm as well so.
0: Santur is somewhat like a dulcimer, is that right?
1: Yeah, it's it's really much. I mean, it's it's the Iraqi equivalent of the hammer dulcimer, which we, we have in American music. Yeah. So it's played with two, two small sticks. sticks. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, it's a it's a trapezoidal box with strings uh, tied across it, and you you play it with uh, with two uh, sticks. Two and how is it mallets. tuned? Um, it's tuned to a scale that's called Rast in in, in Arabic music and it basically consists of it's so, sort of roughly equivalent to the major scale except that the third and seventh degrees are quarter tones so instead of being an E natural it's an E half flat which is somewhere between E natural and E flat and the B half flat which is somewhere between B and B flat. And then the right side of the instrument is where all the um, the accidental notes are. So you'll, you'll have F sharp and A half flats and C half sharps and all the other notes because there's a, a lot of times in, in the Maqam you'll modulate from one to another. Um, but, um, but getting back to like the, the scales are actually really similar to the Greek modes. I mean in fact the theorists of the early Islamic you know, in the Islamic Empire in the 700, 800, 900 AD were drawing on Greek texts and Pythagoras's uh, study of, of um, har- you know the, the harmonic relationships between pitches. That, that was like the, a, a very fertile uh, ground for them to continue to develop this musical theory. So again, another point of, of commonality where, where, where we're really dealing with the same
0: kind of materials. So. Sure. So, uh, and I know we haven't even started talking about the new record yet, but I feel like people will be able to get more out of that conversation if they've got some of this as we get up to it. Uh, When you, after you had spent time studying this music and it was time now to start writing music that both incorporated the Macomb tradition and then the kind of jazz and blues and other musics that you had grown up playing, how did you figure out how to to Kind of fuse those together, and and which to give weight to at any moment, and how they would kind of mesh.
1: Yeah, it was it was a struggle for me at first. And um, two rivers was was the the first full length piece that I wrote that that drew on the maqam tradition and in, um, in a jazz context. And it it came about with a commission from the Painted Bride Art Center in Philadelphia, and I was approached and was was intrigued by the idea, but was really a little bit nervous about it and and I wasn't comfortable because at, at that time I was so much inside of the Iraqi maqam music and I wasn't really playing much trumpet I was I was mostly singing and playing santur and the thought of somehow taking this these sounds and and this music out of its element and putting into some artificial or some some other place just didn't didn't make a lot of sense to me and and it was about a year and a half from when I got the commission to when I actually started writing the music um, and it was like the last possible deadline because it's part of a concert series at some point about a, I think it was about a month before the premiere of the of the piece I decided or I, I think I, I, I was playing with elements and I was getting into each maqam um, at some point each maqam that I was, there were a few that I was really looking at that I thought would, would work that might, might make sense if I put them into a jazz context and, and, and they started to kind of fit themselves with different parts of the jazz tradition. And that, that concept of the Two Rivers suite, the first piece, it was really about, you know, taking a jazz con, you know, whether it was a groove or a certain kind of aesthetic or certain, um, f- improv, improvised context and, matching it with a maqam. It was really kind of consciously an homage to both traditions. Um, but yeah, certain, certain, um, maqams just made sense. Okay. That, that groove and that sound can go with this and kind of things just pieces put themselves together in a way. Like, I don't, I just remember being not knowing what to do at one point and within a couple of weeks having 12 compositions, and I don't really remember what, how it happened. They just kind of fit themselves <laughs> together. And, and I was I just, just, yeah, I, I wish I could remember those, those times. I, I just realized I'm talking to you now, I was like, I don't remember actually writing that stuff, but I know I did. But one day I woke up and there was I all was this there music there on the piano. Thing,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: for that one. I, I wish everything else came that easily, but, but that, that project, that, Particular thing because I think it was it it had been brewing inside of me for a long time and that was what I initially set out to do when I said I'm I'm, when I decided to study maqam I was like just gonna get a little bit of this and you know mix it with jazz but it took five years or so of of kind of full immersion in that tradition before I felt comfortable.
0: It's so interesting. I mean, it almost sounds like rewiring your brain, you know, so that these all these strains of music that you're hearing, you can finally. You can hear all the commonalities between them. I mean, it just sounds really fascinating, like a fascinating process, just intellectually mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. to get to this place where you see how everything starts interlocking together. Yeah, yeah. At some point, it's it's almost
1: like there's a, you know, the, these melodies are kind of archetypes, and the rhythms are archetypes, and some in some way they, when you get down to the beneath the surface and to the root of what each of these are about you find that there's there actually there's some commonality there's some some way that they fit together that that just makes sense and um but it it involved a lot of investigating a lot of um exploring what not just listening but kind of getting into what what the soul and what what's what's being expressed subconsciously and what emotions are being because i mean all the music you know there's there are are, are basic as human beings I and mean, we, we have some really basic emotions and, and basic responses to things that are pretty common throughout, you know, throughout all of humanity. I mean, I've encountered people from so many different cultures and, and haven't found that much Different. I mean, the the differences are the exciting part to me. Like, oh, you you know, like especially like when there's two languages that are closely related, and oh, you say it that way. We say it. it's it's kind of fun and it's ex- exci- exciting, you know. Um, but the but in essence, and we're so we're so close, and and the music that comes from each culture is again expressing common common uh, sentiments and common states of mind, and and you know so.
0: Now you mentioned uh, earlier when you first started talking about maqam that it is often very rhythmically free. Mm-hmm. When it came time to put it into the context of the two rivers ensemble, did mm-hmm. you have to make some some alterations or or some more predetermined rhythmic decisions?
1: Well, the the maqam melodies in their essence are rhythmically free, um, but oftentimes composers, even within the tradition, will take one of these rhythmically free maqams and put it into one of the twelve or so rhythms that I was describing earlier. So it's actually a practice that exists already within the tradition to to take this this melody and somehow make it work in a in a ten six in a ten eight ry- rhythm or a two four rhythm or whatever whatever the, the groove is. Um, so I basically use that approach, but instead of dealing with just the the rhythms from within the tradition, I was dealing with um, you know, whether it was a swing or a slow, kind of funky thing or whatever it was, or, or an odd meter. And even in, in some cases I was actually drawing from other Arab traditions. There's one piece that's called Khoshrang. it's a 17-8, which is actually coming out of Syrian tradition, but I displaced the beats to kind of make an interlocking rhythmic pattern that, that wasn't part of the tradition originally, but it was definitely drawing from that, you know, from that sound.
0: Will you talk about who's on the new record Inanna with you please
1: mm-hmm. um, So Joining, so that the, the uh, Oud and percussion Is played by Zafar Tawil And um, he's He's a brilliant uh, multi-instrumentalist um, Who's performing Who's not only with you know Great Arab musicians locally And, and internationally like Simon Shaheen who lives here in New York um as well as he's, he's performed the sting and uh, I forget Mami others, but he's he's also getting to be known among jazz performers as well. He's performed with Elliot Sharp and um, he's really really I mean he picks up any instrument and and kind of has mastery over it and it seems like instantaneously. I mean he plays the qanun which is uh, like a, a zither. It's a plucked zither instrument. Um, as well as the oud, violin, he's now playing the nai flute, and I mean, he just like it just picks it up and, and naturally makes makes beautiful music, and he's he's a lot of fun to be around. So he keeps the mood happy, especially when we have long rehearsals. <laughs> so he's, he he's sounds great. amazing on the program. Yeah, 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 he's incredible. a wonderful musician. Yeah. Um Abu Abushi plays the buzuk, and uh, he's he's uh, actually trained in, in classical and jazz piano. He's, he graduated from William Patterson. And um, I, I mean, again, like I knew early on that these were two people I wanted to work with because they're people that are versed in the Arab musical traditions, but also have a scope and a perspective and understanding that goes beyond. And are, are even within the tradition, they're like searching for for something new. And so, and Tariq has his own group called Shusmu that does um, co- his own combination of jazz and Latin rhythms and um, and and. An Arabic tradition. So he's, he's, he's on his own path doing something else that's again really beautiful and, and his influence in the group and his willingness to kind of re, in some, some cases it's like relearning your instrument because I'm asking him to do things that, that aren't typical on the bazook, but he's, he's excited to do it because he wants to find those
0: sounds. So. And a bazook is kind of like a lute, is that right?
1: Um, yeah. So, well, the oud is, is the closest thing to the lute because okay. it's, it's a nylon string. It's a large, Oh, that's body, right. Okay. Yeah, the buzuk is is a long-necked steel-string, fretted instrument. Um, kind of has more of a twangy mm. sound to it. Um, almost, I, I don't know what. Almost banjo-like. Yeah, okay. probably be the closest thing in, in our musical traditions okay. here. Yeah.
0: Band, if you yeah
2: would.
1: and um carlo de rosa great great bass player he's one one of the first people i met when i moved to new york um in 2000 and and i he's just been rock solid from the beginning and and again is is willing to put in the the effort and the time to understand like the, the the intonations that i'm writing and all the the it, he's i can't say anything He's just he's just been a great musician and and friend throughout the process um nasheed waits again he's he's actually the first drummer i played with when i moved to new york as well um and and he he i I think i was attracted to his playing because he has a way of of not stating things you know of, of putting things out there but you you feel it and it's it's there, but somehow he's actually he's not playing it. he has kind of a magical way of of playing the drums um, but when he does state it, you hear it for sure because he <laughs> he can definitely hit hard too yeah, and he's extremely dynamic and extremely um, but his, and his approach to rhythm there's a there's a fluidity in it that actually works really well with the maqam kind of um aesthetic of of this free flowing stuff when it, when it gets into that territory and when it is rhythmic, he can make it feel like it's, it's still free at the same time. So
0: was there somewhat of a, a learning curve for him just to become familiar with the rhythmic necessities of um, his music or a little
1: bit, but he's, he, he's, he was really quick though to get it. Sure. Um, and, and again, I, it wasn't the kind of thing where I wanted him to sound like an authentic, uh, drum set player, which wouldn't really make sense anyway, but right. <laughs> I didn't want him to like, you know, to gravitate toward uh, it it was it was never a a requisite that anybody in the group you know try to sound like anything other than who they are i just Mm -hmm. wanted in his case just to give him those rhythmic formulas and let him do whatever he he does like bring his own personality and and the same with you know with carlo same and same with Tarek and and zafar to you know like okay he so here's a chord you don't usually play chords on the buzzuk but this is those are the three notes i want and then you know how are you going to play them how are you going to displace them what are you going to do with your um the long and short you know expression and stuff so so and yeah it's all about having very strong individuals with with unique and strong voices and then letting letting them do do what they do with Mm -hmm. the material so uh makes my job easier as a composer (laughs) Um, and then the, the, the last person, the most recent member is Ule Matisse, um, who's a wonderful tenor and soprano saxophonist who has replaced Rudresh, who, Rudresh was playing in the group from 2006 when it was formed until earlier this year, until about March of 2011. Um, basically, as you probably know he's extremely busy and and uh was it was almost impossible to nail him down for for gigs which i'm i'm really happy for him that that's right. working. <laughs> but it was just like okay so so what's your availability i'd be like you know a year out and it's like okay well um, you know between march 1st and may 17th i can't do anything i've got three days and then i'm out to europe it's just like okay you know <laughs> um so that that was getting to be a challenge but uh but fortunately it was very amicable i mean, just it made sense and, and we both understood and and we're still very very good friends um and and i'm glad that he was part of the group for as long as he was and his definitely his presence and he left his his mark and his stamp on the music um but ule was was one of uh I, mean, I first heard about him actually through my fiance, who was studying with him at Columbia. And when I was struggling with who am I going to find to play his music, you know, like who? Well, the question really is who can play quarter tones on the saxophone, because very, very few people do. And you know, and I thick, just want to jump in for a yeah. second because
0: we've we've talked a lot. We've used microtonality and quarter tones a lot yeah. without actually defining it. So okay. maybe it's easiest if people just imagine a piano and in between the black and the white key, right? It's possible to get another note. Yeah, in there, many different tone. notes. Many different yeah, notes, yeah. actually, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: We roughly say quarter tone. I use that term too, but it's, it's not 100% accurate because a lot of times these notes are very, very subtle shadings of, you know, like I was saying earlier between B and B flat. There's, there's actually so many individual pitches and, um, probably about 12 or so that are, that are used in practice. Um, you wouldn't play B, one eighth flat and then b one ninth flat next to it you wouldn't do that, but you would they would always exist within you know from usually it's it's actually larger than a half step the intervals between between the notes um so it'd be like three quarters plus three quarters or like whatever seven a's plus nine eighths or something right. like that yeah um but but yeah so there's these these shadings of pitch that that go on that are very very specific and yet kind of flexible at the same time sure um and so when i was looking for someone who who had some mastery of this on the saxophone because oh, not too many people do um and i was thinking about hafez but he's in california and again would we have some scheduling issues and and i also like having my project with hafez as its own thing hafez modir a day who my i did a cd with him
0: uh last year which is brilliant and people should check it out if they have oh, yet i'd say, yeah, it's really good <laughs>
1: um but uh so ule came about um was and and i he he was blew me away from the first time because I, I actually was giving him music that wasn't transposed and it's it's quarter tones all over the place it's not just like you know one you need to know one or two is you know d half flat to e to g half flat to a and and, then, and i'd be really specific i'd be like this one needs to be a little bit higher a little bit lower and not only did he get it right away i mean he sight read it right away like perfectly (laughs) um which really scared me but (laughs) but then but then he you know like but he was really excited and willing to like check it like you know and he's checked out he's plays in a persian uh with a persian singer and he's um definitely checked out a a lot of non-western traditions that deal with different pitch pitch uh philosophies and stuff but he he just was on it right away. And, and not only that, but as a great, great improviser and has his completely his own voice and his own approach. And, um, and he, he has this synergetic way of playing where, um, this into intuition where, you know, I'll breathe and I'll play a note and he'll, he'll play the, the note at the same time with me. And he, we phrase
0: things together really well. And he's, he's just been a great, great new addition to the group. It uh, it strikes me, and I, this is, I guess, just a layman speaking, but it strikes me that it would require a remarkable amount of, of listening and kind of being uh, musically in tune together to have a two-horn front line that was required to play this microtonal music, because you have to hit these very subtle pitch shadings mm-hmm. together yeah. to make it sound good. Is that an accurate <laughs> statement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. one person we haven't really talked about is you, and you mentioned uh, that when you started uh, trying to kind of realize your vision for microtonal music on the trumpet, you played a trumpet with a slide, and now you just use a regular B-flat trumpet. Can you talk about what's involved in in making that work?
1: Yeah, basically, um, yeah, so I started with with this trumpet with an extra slide, and that slide was operated with a thumb and basically would lower the pitch of the entire instrument by you know, any gradation that up, up to about a half step. And so I was able to use that to, to get all these microtones and, um, but it wasn't a very good instrument and I, I wasn't happy with it. It was, it was very limited. I always felt like I was kind of struggling and at some point I said, well, there must be a way to do this on a, on a regular trumpet. I started looking at the, the first and third valve slides that every trumpet has that are pretty much they're not really used very much. There're only about two or three notes that that people really use those for in in normal um western
0: trumpet playing. And that's just to make those notes play in tune or is to, it to, yeah, okay.
1: because there li- there's a few sharp notes. So so those are meant to bring the pitch down. But amazingly there that you can actually do a lot more with these slides than than anybody really seems to do and and um I didn't even you know I I realized at one point looking at the trumpet and starting to change and use different fingerings and using these slides, that every quarter tone was was achievable through some combination of, of changing the fingerings and using the slides. Because the slides only operate on the first and third valves. So if you're not pressing the first or third valve down, the slides won't do anything to the pitch. Okay. Um, so... So basically I had to find fingerings for every note that use the first or third valve in order to, to, to do it. So what ends up happening is there's a lot of really cumbersome and, and sort of clumsy fingerings that you have to become comfortable with. And, (laughs) and I'm still, I'm still working on it because it's, it's like certain, I, I got the basic ones down. I have all the, I can play any, Quarter tone, but the question is being able, being able to play it within a, a passage, and especially now that I'm modulating from one maqam to another very quickly, the quarter tones are, are moving around all the time. So it's, it's sort of a, a negotiation and, and sort of reconfiguring of, of learning how, learning how to finger notes in a, in a totally different way that I, I, it's, it's a continual challenge, but, um, but an exciting one because I, I feel like I can get much closer to the sound I've I've been wanting to create for a long time. So
0: I know on uh, on a saxophone, which is the instrument that I play, you mm-hmm. can change the pitch also with your embouchure, with your jaw. You can drop your jaw down or squeeze right. and raise and lower the pitch. Can you change pitch with your embouchure on you a trumpet?
1: You can on the trumpet, but the thing is that if you do that, so let's say I'm playing a, a passage that goes G F E half flat D. So I'm playing with a regular. Ambusher for G and F, and then I switch it for the E half flat. Then when I go to the D, I have to go back to the first right. Um, and that the, that kind of changing, you end up getting a really slidey weird sound. And if you're doing a lot of microtones, um, it, it doesn't. And that and the pitch and the 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 timbre mm-hmm. when you alter the pitch when you bend the pitch usually changes. And so I, I wanted to have each note be centered and focus and not not be bending into it or sliding into it. So that that's why um occasionally there's occasionally i use that um if it makes sense in 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 the line but pretty much i'm i'm doing it always
0: with the the slides and the sure. alternate fingerings you mentioned and i don't remember his name but you mentioned an egyptian trumpeter who mm-hmm. you had heard who was also using the trumpet in egyptian music it, right. are there microtones in that music and was he yeah. using some technique like you using? he was yeah yeah samuel Babli and um i
1: had a chance to meet him in 1999 and it was just about a year before he died mm. um uh, he he died very early. I mean, he was in his early 60s, but he, he was in a car accident in Cairo. And, um, but when I met him in, in 99, I was just, just had a couple chances to sit down with him. And, uh, and he sang for me some stuff and played for me on trumpet. And, and I, I couldn't even say it was a, it wasn't a lesson in the, the traditional sense because I wasn't playing. I wasn't getting, but just those, those few hours I spent with him had such an impact on me. Um, and, and just sort of, it, it wasn't enough. I mean, I was planning to go back and, and spend a year. I was going to apply for a Fulbright and go study with him. And then, you know, mm. I just, and I had, it was, it was really shocking. I was really upset. Um, but, but yeah, he, so I, I, I work with the recordings that I have of him. There's a few commercially available and then quite a few that are sort of, you know, circulating that I've, I've managed to get my hands on. Sure. But um, but yeah, he was using some something with the slides. But he was also, um, his embouchure was different. I think he he started playing trumpet already with playing quarter tones in mind. So he kind of had a, he has a very different sound. I mean, the first time I heard Samuel Bobley's trumpet, I didn't know what instrument I was listening to for the first minute and a half. I just I was you know it's like this is a really cool sounding wind instrument i never heard it like it's, i remember sitting there, i was listening with my sister she played it for me and, and i couldn't believe the sound i was hearing and i wanted to know what that was I and mean, when she told me it was a trumpet i had to listen to it five more times wow to believe her you know it's like it's a beautiful sound so so yeah but I, i've encountered musicians um like eastern european like balkan trumpet players and they do something with their lips to, to alter the pitch, but that music doesn't necessarily have as, as much of the microtonal mm. element as, as, there's some, it's, there's still some remnants of microtonality in, like in Balkan brass playing, but it's, it's pretty much, um, working within an equal tempered framework. Sure. So.
0: There's also a, a programmatic element, so to speak, to mm-hmm. the new album, Inanna. Will you talk about where the title comes from and, and the, the kind of underpinnings of the suite?
1: From- yeah. Um, Inanna is the Sumerian goddess uh, of love and warfare. She sort of this has this dual nature, and uh, reading about her is really fascinating. I, I was just getting into some Sumerian mythology a couple of years ago when, when, when I started writing this music I didn't know what the music was going to be I had a commission from Chamber of Music America to to write the piece and um, had been reading Sumerian mythology and I kept kind of coming across her and getting stumped by her because it's just confusing in a way because she's both love and war which we think of as kind of opposites and then when you examine a little bit closer, you guys, and maybe they're not so different it's like so, especially it's it's not motherly love, it's sort of more like sexual love or carnal mm. love it's, or it's like very it's very embodied um and she's she's kind of has this brash impetuous nature to her, and like all the all of the gods and some unlike the Greek mythology where the gods tend to fight with each other in battle uh, these gods are all pretty much. And even keeled and and are cool with each other, but she's always like throwing tirades and and you know creating sort of chaos within this very orderly Sumerian pantheon of of gods. And um and she she appears in a lot of myths, like in in Gilgamesh, um and when Gilgamesh and Enkidu slay the bull, that's probably one, probably the most famous of any Sumerian myth that has come down to us. Um, she's actually the one that sent the bull to kill gilgamesh because she was upset with him because she he, he wouldn't respond to her advances and wouldn't allow her to seduce him so mm-hmm. her way of getting pissed off, you know her way of expressing it was to send a bull and you know i think in the process you know hundreds of people died and there was this whole thing but but that was her you know sort of her nature and so there's a lot a lot of myths um dealing with her and and um she became known as ishtar in babylonian mythology that name's sort of around people have heard that mm-hmm. name then and then the uh greek and roman um aphrodite and venus are actually based on her a lot of the myths um you can find parallels um but but of course venus is the love god is not war i mean we have so so at some point, things split off, and and all, you know different myths. And she also has a very famous journey to the underworld, which was the subject of um, a lot of Carl Jung's writings. He 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 draws on that, um, that particular myth, and it and Persephone's um, underworld story from from the Greek mythology again is is paralleled, and they they have very very si- similar kind of stories. So I'm part of my reason for. For drawing on this myth was was I was just fascinated by this character. She seemed to embody a certain part of the feminine that maybe we don't. I guess we do talk about, it, but it's just um, and then and then just even dealing with the feminine, especially in. Especially in jazz, because I feel like jazz is, is, has such a masculine component to it, and, and there's so much, there's, there can be a certain machismo among, like, p- the sort of posturing and, and proving of one's, you know, what one's learned, and, and, and not to mention that, not, that, that there's a majority of men playing, you know, playing the music as well as listening to the music, and there's a certain element of, of it, and, and I think, um, but I've always been, Trying to find some balance between masculine and feminine, in some way, and and i f- I found that um, even in the music that I create with Hafez, and we talk about it a lot, there's a, a lot of there's like a feminine principle of of there's a feeling there's a there's an intuition there's well I mean intuition is intuition but um, there's this s- sort of where no where when pitches become more. Qu- Qualitative rather than quantitative when it's less about functional harmony and less about the, you know, chords and their hierarchy and, and not to mention Western equal temperament and the, the sort of colonial, um, ramific era implications of that. Um, there's, there's something in, in, in what Hafez and I found together where like sometimes we felt like we were playing music in a womb or in a cocoon or mm-hmm. something and there's something more in, internal, introspective, um, and even Iraqi maqam music i mean it 's primarily uh, been created and performed by men but there's there 's a still there 's a kind of an inward seeking um, element to it where where it, you know you can have a whole piece that 's only within a, a range of a fourth and and it 's all about finding the subtleties and the 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 um like it's it's it 's like feeling the the notes feeling the the pitch rather than stating them or or naming them or or I don't know. It's it's a it's a little of a funny area. It's hard to to verbalize sometimes, but um, but I felt like drawing on a, f- a feminine principle was was something really important and and um was important something that
0: I wanted to contribute in the music. And how did the the story or the mythology of Inanna uh, express itself compositionally? Um,
1: I, nothing was too literal. I didn't I didn't try in my compositions to like okay I'm gonna I mean. It, I did end up pairing the compositions with, with myths, but I was more, um, I just read up on her Mm. a lot when I was writing the music and, and kind of tried to tap into those, those stories and, and get, get a, you know, tried to feel each story in my bones in a way and, 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 um, reach an understanding. And, and I, I just... It was more about getting into a state of mind and writing the music from that place rather than like writing a tone poem or something or yeah. trying to film score to the myth or writing. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't want to do it. And and then in some cases, like in J- Journey to the Underworld, I mean, she has, there's a part in that myth, in that myth where sh- she's removing her seven garments as she's descending. Um, and so like I, I have seven sections, but they kind of overlap in, in ways. And, and like if I, if I told, the way the story of journey to the underworld is—it's sort of four or five different things that are going on at the same time, on different levels, different parts of the myth. Um, but they—they they kind of—I don't know how to say—nothing I, I, was literal. But once I once the music was written, it really made. I started to see what was based mm. on what. So again, sort of like the with the original two rivers, it's kind of like trying to get to the source, trying to get to the under the archetypal underpinnings of of each of these stories or each of these maqams or each of and and again it was it was finding the right maqam to go with it finding the right or not maqam you know so, sometimes is completely um in a totally different tonal palette but um but yeah, so, and, and then each, each composition, I mean, I, the titles come from different aspects of, of her being infinite variety, cause she, she's the goddess of infinite variety, which she achieves through trickery and flattery, like she, she fools these different gods into giving them her quintessences, and then ends up having this incredible palette of, of different things. So <laughs> so the piece Infinite Variety has this like, six-part contrapuntal thing going on where each is sort of expressing its own thing, but it's... They're all kind of layered <clears> on top <throat> of each other also, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I told you before we started I, I love this record And actually all of your music Has really spoken to me I'm really uh, a fan of what you're What you're doing oh, And what you're searching you. for Yeah, you're welcome it. it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you My guest is Amir El-Safar The new album is called Inanna And thank you so much For, for talking about it My pleasure Thanks for having me That's music from Amir El Safar and his new record, Inana on Pi Recordings. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Don't forget, this show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year, but... If you decide to become a member at the middle or top level, which is either $25 a month or $250 a year, or the top level, $50 a month or $500 a year, you'll get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set called Seasons, which is a really cool uh, album and film of a performance that Anthony did here in New York playing a piece that he wrote for four guitars that were built to be played together and joining him on the show are uh, Julian Lodge who's been on this show Steve Cardenas who's been on this show and Chico Pinero, who has not been on this show yet but should be someday so if you join at the middle or top levels either monthly or yearly the next two people to do that will get this Anthony Wilson DVD CD set and you can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join and the show really does need your support to keep going so please become a member Meanwhile, get out there, if you would, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
2: Yeah.